Welcome to the Human Performance Podcast. Here we talk about everything to do with human performance and how leaders and organizations can get the best out of themselves and their people. I'm your host, Alex Young. My guest on the podcast this week is Dr. Scott Parazinski. Scott is a highly decorated American physician, explorer, entrepreneur, and a NASA astronaut hall of famer. Scott is a graduate of Stanford University Medical School and went on to train at Harvard and in Denver for a career in emergency medicine and trauma, while also training for Olympic level luge. Scott is a veteran of five space shuttle flights and seven spacewalks, including mission STS-120 in October 2007, which was highlighted by a dramatic unplanned EVA to repair a live solar array and is still regarded by many as one of the most challenging and dangerous ever performed. Scott currently serves as the founder and CEO of Fluidity Technologies, focusing on the development of revolutionary input devices powered by machine learning to intuitively move through physical and virtual space. Scott is the first person to have both flown in space and summited Mount Everest, the highest point on Earth. And a lifelong explorer, Scott has also set footprints adjacent to the world's youngest lava lake in the Masaya volcano in Nicaragua. We talk about innovation, risk management, leadership under extreme adversity, and the importance of sports in team building. Hey, Scott, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Doing great, Alex. Uh, Fun to be with you. I know, great to, great to uh, catch up. Um, I think like many of um, the guests we've had on, it's, uh, it's just a pleasure to be speaking to you, albeit not in person. I was, I was just jokingly saying before the podcast started that um, I was, I think whenever I speak to you, um, I, I'm always just blown away by everything you've done to the point where I don't want to come off as too much of a nerd. So I, I never jump into your backstory too much. So this is my guilty pleasure at asking you lots of nerdy questions. <laughs> Oh, you're, you're too kind. No, I, I'm, I'm uh, an Uber nerd and uh, I'm, uh, I've had some, some great adventures in life that have, have uh, um, you know, cards have fallen in, in my favor, of course, many, many times, but uh, uh, great to swap stories with you as well. No, fantastic. Well, I, I think, um, I mean, w- one of the, um, the key bits, obviously, your backstory is uh, being a physician. Um, and I wonder whether we, um, with your backstory um if, if you wanted to talk about you know a little bit about your i suppose motivations um behind going into a career in medicine everything you've done um and, and sort of take it from there sure you bet alex well uh my grandfather uh, who perished before uh, i was born unfortunately he, he uh, uh died even before my my parents were married he, he was a, a physician so I had heard the family lore about uh, my grandfather. Um, was always very interested in in healthcare and, and wanting to help people as as he had done. And uh, combined with that, my father worked on the Apollo program that first took men to the moon in the late '60s, early '70s. So I had these two uh, burning interests in my my childhood: healthcare as well as um, the space program, and and actually wanting to be the first astronaut to set footprints down on Mars. Those are my my two ambitions in life, and they seem a little incongruous, perhaps, but as I was going to medical school uh, in the Bay Area uh, at Stanford, um, I had an opportunity to work at NASA's Ames Research Center, uh, Moffett Field, California, and I, I saw 
a pathway for me to combine the two you know, boyhood heroes, uh, boyhood passions of mine. Um, basically, the, the merger into uh, space medicine, and uh, and so I, I started doing research that applied to uh, keeping astronauts healthy on long duration space flights. And uh, one thing led to to another. I ended up having an opportunity to apply for the, the space program, and ultimately uh, became a physician astronaut and got a chance to fly on uh, five space shuttle missions and do some really cool things uh, up in space. Um, but also, uh, you know, my training is in, in healthcare and as a physiologist and uh, trained in emergency medicine. And uh, so I'm, I'm really drawn to uh, human performance in the extreme. How, how do we uh, sustain life in uh, extreme environments like space, uh, like undersea habitats uh, uh, on tops of uh, tall mountains? How, how can we uh, develop technologies to make it safe for people to go do work there to extract science, uh, um, and and then um, how can we use those discoveries then to improve the quality of life here down at sea level, you know, back in our everyday lives? And so that's that's sort of been a you know a recurring theme in my life, uh, having an opportunity to go to lots of different uh, kind of extraordinary environments, uh, um, you know, space, mountains, uh, inside volcanoes. Uh, yeah, I've done some really fun things with some big thinking explorers. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think you would agree with me, Alex, this is just a, an extraordinary time to be alive when there's this uh, confluence of information and, and technology and, and uh, capability to, uh, to do ever more audacious things with our, with our technologies. And uh, so right now I'm, I'm essentially uh, working in, uh, in tech. I have my own company called Fluidity Technologies, which is based around uh, you know, some of my IP, but uh, essentially uh, human machine interfaces and robotic controls, um, but also working on a number of other uh, technologies. Uh, um, it's uh, just, uh, you know, these are, these are certainly challenging times, but uh, for people in tech, there are also great opportunities. There are lots of problems for us to solve, right? Right, absolutely, and and it's. I mean, the word challenge is uh, a really apt one, actually, and and certainly you know, in the current environment, um, one of the things that I was talking about on the podcast with a number of previous guests was uh, in any challenging environment, uh, people who are entrepreneurial in nature are, are almost like sort of um, you know energized by that. How can how, you know what can we do to help? How can we um, found a solution to to help people in these situations? And Indeed. You know, one of the things that struck me in your backstory was um, even at quite an early stage, you were looking at sort of, you know, inventing things. You had that interest in, in how things worked in, in sort of, you know, space and human physiology. Um, what, where do you think, I mean, do, do you think, is there anything in your sort of backstory, I guess, even before you, you got to Stanford, which in, in itself is an amazing achievement, um, that you think sort of really instilled in you that, um, you know, real kind of, ability to step up to a challenge and, and actually challenge yourself and push you through um, certain things that, that in, in um, you, you know, your, some of the later things you did were, were just proving valuable. I think uh, I owe a, a great deal to my parents. Uh, they, they were very adventurous in their own right. Uh, when I was very young, as an only child, uh, we were able to uh, relocate to, to live in West Africa and later in the Middle East and in Europe. So I 
at a very early age, before I even went to college, I had an opportunity to, to travel the world. Um, I had an insatiable sense of curiosity. I don't know why uh, I'm, I'm wired this way, but it's just uh, uh, the way I am. Um, and uh, I guess I'm internally motivated to solve problems. I, I really do enjoy uh, challenges. When people tell me something's impossible or you, know, you can't do that, uh, I, I, I kind of uh, bristle a little bit in, internally and uh, uh, I, I brainstorm, you know, how can I, can I make something that others are saying is impossible to do possible? And, uh, you know, I, I am an inventor, as are you. Uh, I think you'd probably agree with this uh, description, but an inventor is a motivated whiner, someone who uh, identifies problems, but then really cogitates upon what the problem is, the underlying problem, and then are there uh, a variety of solutions that can be brought to bear to solve that problem. And invariably, uh, you can come up with uh, solutions that uh, you know, have, have real value that are worth commercializing. And so um, from a very early age, I was uh, a tinkerer, a builder, and an inventor. Um, my father uh, was a, uh, an engineer working on the Apollo program, but uh, we built uh, you know, furniture and you know, so I you know, worked on cars and, and things of that nature. And so just that, that whole kind of upbringing, I think, set me up for you know, what I'm doing today. Um, and, and I mean, one of the things that uh, you did even before, I, I think I'm right in saying that you um, were or actually was it before you accepted onto um, the space program that, that you actually um, found an interest in uh, the Olympics and, and in particular luge? Yes, indeed. Yeah, I, well, I was very athletic. Um, I, I rode crew and, and uh, ran track, uh, played a little basketball as well, especially in high school. Um, but I, I wasn't uh, Olympic caliber in, in those sports. Uh, but I had an opportunity to try out for this crazy winter Olympic sport called luge. And I'm sure you've seen it. It's a feet first on a, a, a sled about the size of a cafeteria tray. And you go, you know, breakneck speeds, 85, 90 miles an hour down a icy track, pulling high Gs. And I, I'd seen it on the Olympics and thought, wow, that would be incredible to try that some sometime. But uh, I never imagined that I'd ever get a chance until um, there was a selection the U.S. team was looking to recruit athletes from other sports to give it a go. And uh, long story short, uh, in the buildup to the 1988 uh, Winter Olympic Games in Calgary, Canada, uh, I, I, I was selected to, uh, to try out the sport uh, in Lake Placid. And I spent uh, essentially three winters uh, while I was in medical school uh, training and competing in that sport and uh, did quite well in the uh, U.S. Olympic trials, but didn't, didn't quite make our, our squad. But uh, exhilarating uh, you know, life experience. And yeah, it was actually kind of a, a defining moment in my life, uh, even though I, I didn't get a chance to compete and represent my country, uh, a door opened up for me to serve as a coach of another uh, team, in fact, uh, you know, the Winter Olympic Powerhouse of the Philippines, <laughs> and uh, yeah, an, an athlete, a good friend of mine, uh, needed a coach and, and support uh, for the Calgary Games, and so I got a chance to to go to Calgary and, and march in opening ceremonies, albeit behind a, 
a different flag and national anthem, but it, it was really a really wonderful life experience. And had you done, I guess at that stage, had you done um, much kind of coaching of others or had you mainly been, uh, I suppose, with, you know, in teams or, or performing uh, yourself? I had mostly been performing as uh, an athlete, you know, competing myself. But, um, you know, part of the job actually was uh, you know, building and repairing sleds. And I remember the uh, uh, halfway through the, the qualifying rounds, my buddy Ray Ocampo from the Philippines broke his sled. And he needed to uh, um, go down the, the track one more time, showing a clean you know, passage down the track where he wouldn't be able to compete. And I recall you know, staying up all night, uh, repairing his sled, getting him back on the ice. And, and he, he had a, a good clean run the next day and he was able to compete. Um, and so that was, uh, that was really a um, kind of a harrowing event, but you know, it's, it's all part and parcel of you know, what it takes to to support an athlete at the Olympics. And it, it is, it's an absolutely amazing sport. Um, I mean, I, I'm slightly reticent to say, say it as a sort of uh, someone who trained in orthopedic surgery, because if, if, you, <laughs> if you come down safely, it, it's, it's probably not very fun, but it's, um, it, it must be incredibly exhilarating you know, at, when you're at the top, especially when you're competing at a high level. Um, do, I, I guess, you know, of all the things you've done, where, where do you think, I guess, you know, the exhilaration of sort of going down a lose run sort of fits in do you think it's it's such an intense uh uh explosive kind of experience uh i recall uh you know one particular run in lake placid uh at the, the peak of the winter and i i think it was uh minus 30 degrees uh at the start house and with wind chill it was below minus 40 it was just brutally cold so you know you would warm up in the start house you'd run out quickly, uh, get on your sled, uh, rock back on, on the paddles and, uh, and, uh, and propulse, you know, uh, yourself down the, uh, the track. And it was one of the most dangerous, uh, tracks in the world. Uh, one combination of, uh, curves, uh, is just mind numbingly, uh, you know, flattening it, it just, you know, incredible, you know, readjustment of g-forces as you as you make this s-turn uh down the track um and it's a terrifying you know kind of thing and and so uh you know you're training down and you know, within 45 seconds of uh departing the uh the start house um you're at the bottom of the run and you're you're completely drenched in sweat and your heart is racing at 160 beats per minute i mean it's just uh, just this intensity of both physical and, and mental uh, exertion. And uh, there, there's really nothing like it in the world. That, uh, that sense of speed and, and uh, um, acceleration. And, yeah, you, you, would just, uh, you would just love the, the experience. And it, it's uh, um, somewhat akin to uh, the exhilaration that you would experience on a, on a rocket launch as well. I mean, there's, there's months, if not years of preparation, leading up to eight and a half minutes of uh, acceleration off of the planet. And, uh, the anticipation of, uh, of leaving the planet. Um, and, uh, and, and then finally at, at T-Zero, the, the main engines on the space shuttle ignite and you're, you're you know, thrown back in your seat at three times your normal body weight or three Gs and, and the ship is rattling and, and uh, it's, it's, 
there's so much uh, vibration, it's, it's almost difficult to, to read the uh, displays in front of you. And uh, you realize that in eight and a half minutes, you'll be traveling 17,500 miles an hour from, from Dion orbit. Wow. Um, so yeah, the, I, I don't know which, which experience is uh, you know, more profound, but I wouldn't trade either one. You know? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, there's a, a lot of research kind of in, in the literature. And um, I think anyone who's been in a high-performing team often speaks to the fact that um, they've been involved in um, sports, not necessarily to say an Olympic level, um, but, but that, um, I suppose, ability to work in a team and, and strive for a goal when you're young, particularly in high school or something like that, um, is often attributed to people who do well in teams in later life. Um, is that something that you found, do you think? Absolutely. You know, there's uh, uh, an essential skill set for, um, you know, working at NASA or, you know, in any high-powered role, and, and that is to be successful as a, as a contributing team member. There's, um, there, I can't think of a single um, extraordinary accomplishment in, in human you know, existence that doesn't involve a team, even, even in... Uh, solo type sport, um, you know, there are you know, coaches and, uh, and nutritionists and uh, sports psychologists and, and so on and so forth. Certainly when you consider something as, as technically challenging as going into space, um, there are literally thousands of people that go into each and every mission. It's the, it's the technicians that turn the wrenches that uh, assemble the uh, spacecraft, the, the scientists and engineers who prepare the uh, the science in the vehicle for flight, the instructors, the, the flight controllers, uh, scientists from around the world, and, uh, and a, a crew of you know, uh, six or seven astronauts. So um, absolutely the, uh, the, the importance of team you know, can't be underestimated or undervalued. In fact, one of the things that uh, we would do is space shuttle crews before even beginning our training flow together as, as a team, we would use a, a program called the National Outdoor Leadership School or NOLS. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but uh, it, it takes uh, you know, teams of leaders out into the field, into remote areas, uh, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, uh, sometimes up in, in Alaska. And uh, you're, out, you're thrown out into the wilderness for 10 days and uh, you, know, you have to uh, navigate, uh, you know, find your own shelter and, uh, and really gel as a team. And it, it's just an extraordinary way to, to uh, de develop one's own leadership ability, but also to you know, assess the, the, uh, the strength of everyone on your team and um, fantastic, uh, fantastic program. And, and let's, let's um, you know, jump to, to what you were just talking about, which was um, the, the training um, for when um, you, you um, were kind of accepted into uh, the space program. What, can you sort of speak, um, because I mean, it's, it's something that obviously you know, people will see in movies, that they, they will often be shortened into like a montage. I mean, I, I've obviously, um, when I was out in Houston, seen um, a, a lot of the, the training facilities that um, NASA uh, uses for, for astronaut training. Can, can you just sort of explain, I guess, your, um, I guess, initial sort of excitement at being accepted and then what, what you were faced with the sort of training program? Yeah. Uh, well, first off, the, uh, the, the getting the call that you've gotten your, the dream of 
uh, dream job is, is, you know, certainly a day that I'll never forget. Uh, um, you know, the, the selection process takes uh, about six to nine months and, and you're, you don't know whether or not you're, you're being seriously considered or not. And so every time the phone rings, you're, you're thinking it, it might be NASA calling, but I do remember the day that uh, I got that call and, and just the euphoria that, uh, you know, I'd be moving to Houston and, and starting to train for, for space flight. It was uh, um, just an ex extraordinary day. But uh, um, the, the training itself is, uh, you know, really quite unique. There, there's no facility on earth that allows us to essentially turn off the gravity. So you have to integrate through a lot of different types of uh, uh, modalities to, to get a sense of what it's going to be like to, to live and work up in space. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, virtual reality is, is certainly something that's uh, uh, leveraged quite extensively and, and to include augmented reality akin to what you do uh, with your company, Alex. Uh, but uh, you know, we would use aircraft, uh, high-performance jet aircraft, uh, T-38s, uh, as well as aircraft that would give us uh, brief periods of weightlessness um, we called this aircraft the vomit comet because, uh, you know, the <laughs> nose of the airplane would nose over and give us uh, a few seconds of weightlessness followed by a 2G pullout. And so it would kind of porpoise through the sky. And some people uh, found this quite provocative. Uh, thankfully, it never impacted me that way. But uh, um, there's a lot of fundamental knowledge that you have to get through lectures and, and other types of uh, simulators. Uh, there's a a cabin that rocks and rolls sort of like the space shuttle would do on, on launch. We would practice all of our uh, launch procedures and emerg emergency recovery. Uh, but my favorite was called the Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory. It's the largest swimming pool on earth. It's 40 feet deep, 100 feet wide, and 200 feet in length. And inside there's a, a full mock-up of the International Space Station and the space shuttle payload bay. And we could practice everything that we would do outside on our spacewalks. And so um, that really is just a, a dream getting you know, dunked into the water in, in your white spacesuit. The divers would get you neutrally buoyant such that you wouldn't sink to the bottom of the pool or float to the top. And you, you would have this mental transformation where um, you were instantly in space and uh, you could move around um, in, in three dimensions in this, in this beautiful fashion, the way that you would on a real spacewalk. So. And it, it, I mean, that, that's, you know, visually, that's one of the things where, when um, I, I've not actually physically seen it, but one of um, the things that, that some of the um, trainers at NASA showed me was actually they'd created a, an underwater 360 degree film, which mm -hmm, can be mm -hmm. watched in virtual reality. Um, so I guess, you know, for anyone listening who's, uh, you know, can't quite imagine what that looks like, if you go onto uh, something like YouTube on, on NASA's channel and, and um, search for, for underwater training I, I think is what they sort of named the video but it's uh it's absolutely incredible and it's um I, I think um you know I can only speak from sort of our experiences when we were building our company obviously um all the tra all the astronaut training and everything that NASA does whether it's using virtual reality or whether it's the um the, the physical training um was it, it's just so high-end obviously quite rightly because you're, you're going into these um uh, you know incredibly potentially hazardous environments um, what was, um, I mean, for, for you personally, what, what do you think the hardest bits of, of, of that sort of regime were? Was it, did, did you know, I guess, from an early stage that you were going to be 
uh, deployed or was that something where you, you went through your training and then you were sort of given your instructions? Well, uh, so it was sort of assumed that since you'd been accepted, you would uh, one day fly in space. And, and of course it costs a lot of money as you, as you point out to train someone to, to do um, you know, spacewalking, to, to fly robotic arms, to, to, uh, to launch in the space shuttle and land it. So there's, there's an incredible capital expense expenditure getting you ready to go. So it, it was uh, more or less expected that uh, you would do well enough to uh, uh, you know, make the grade and, and get a chance to, to go fly. Um, but in terms of the, uh, the most difficult aspect of the training, it was all fun. I, I think you'd probably agree with me on this, but I think if you're, if you're passionate about something, you're going to excel. If you're going to you know, yeah. um, work on something and put your full heart into it, uh, that's the best place imaginable for you to be. And so for me, it was just uh, a joy to, to get a chance to go to work every day, even though sometimes the, the training was very, very difficult. Uh, the, uh, the space shuttle launch simulations were really heinous, really. Uh, the instructors would insidiously break various subsystems uh, during a simulated launch. And it could be um, you know, one sensor coupled with uh, uh, an auxiliary power unit coupled with one string on a, uh, on a computer. And if you didn't realize that that had huge impact to your, uh, your main engines, uh, and it was about to explode, uh, it could be a very bad day for you in that simulation. And so you really needed to have an in-depth knowledge of everything, not only the, the way things are supposed to work, but how they might fail. Uh, and you would need to understand the implications of how one system impacted uh, the others. Very much akin to, to medicine, right? Uh, you know, the cardiovascular system, uh, the cardiopulmonary systems, uh, uh, directly impact to what you did as a, an orthopedist. Um, and so if you didn't you know, have that uh, inner working of all the systems, uh, you know, harm could you know, come to your patient. Same thing, uh, the, the space shuttle is a, a very, very complex craft with over 3000 circuit breakers, switches, uh, control interfaces, and you had to know how every single one of them uh, worked and interplayed. And, uh, and so that was, uh, you know, it was a fascinating, uh, education that, that I had, uh, but then the, the intensity of the training was um, at another lo level still. And um, what was interesting is as, as they were you know, making the simulations harder and harder for us as we got closer and closer to flight, we realized, hey, we, we really know how to do this. This, this is, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're a proficient um, team and we can handle anything that might come about on our launch and invariably um, you know we, we would get one or two alarms on our ride up uh, to orbit and it was no big deal whatsoever in fact our hearts wouldn't even skip a beat you know it was just okay we've seen this done this and and uh, let's carry on so the, the the process of training that we went through is very very effective well i just managed the stress mm -hmm. yeah i mean I was, I was just about to say i mean i think um that's that's something that we you know talk about a lot which is if, if you have effective training it does exactly what you've described which is it prepares the individuals and it reduces their anxiety and their stress and then they're less likely um to not not just you know less likely to make errors but actually to perform at their best um and and right. that 
volumes to you know all of the, the you know the research and the preparation that the training teams that NASA did. Absolutely, um, uh, and it, it carries over into everything that uh, you do. I um, I, I had uh, one really extraordinary experience in my spacewalking career. My very last flight in. Um, into space, we had to repair a, a live solar panel. And this is something that was you know, completely unscripted, had uh, never been envisioned that we'd have to go out and do something this complex to a live energized solar panel. But based on the, the years of experience I had, all those hours in the, the training tank, the, uh, the framework of, of operations uh, and knowledge uh, that uh, myself and, and our team had we're able to go out and do something that was, you know, way off off script, uh, and it and it worked very very well. Um, so and, you know, I mean that, that that story in particular is is just incredible. I think partly because it's out of the blue, and and I remember when I um, first read through your book, the, uh, the Sky Below. That's um, I think I'm right in saying it's the uh, sort of lead in the sort of inspiration for the book, where you're talking about the team and everything they did. That's and what, right. Um, and it, it's just that's incredible. I mean, could, could you just sort of, um, I, I know you touched on, um, you know, the actual um, takeoff and, 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 and launch and what it was like sort of, you know, in the first time you're going up. What was it like actually stepping onto the, the foot of the space station? And equally, what was it like when you found out you needed to do that emergency repair on, on quite an important bit of, bit of equipment? Uh, yeah, well, uh, the, the space station is an extraordinary uh, laboratory in the sky. It's a city in the sky. It's 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 uh, a uh, coming together of uh, countries around the world, providing you know technology and, and science. You know. um, so it, it's a wonderful global ac- accomplishment. Um, and I, I was very fortunate to travel there a couple of times during my career to help build it and also repair it. Um, but the, uh, the ultimate astronaut experience is floating out of the hatch. Uh, and the first time I, I did so is actually uh, while docked to the Russian space station Mir, which is, of course, no longer in space. It's actually at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean right now, but uh, uh, they deorbited it. But uh, you're getting a chance to float outside um, and just have a thin visor between you and, and your beautiful blue planet below. It's, a, it's an out-of-body experience. There's, there's no IMAX uh, um, you know, film that can, can do that experience justice. It's a you know, life-changing uh, to be traveling there at those enormous speeds and to see, you know, a continent in a single glance to, to look out into the, the distance and see the enormity of the universe. It's, uh, it's just crazy. But uh, um, my, my last spacewalk, as we were starting to talk about, was uh, an unscripted, unplanned repair of a live solar panel. Um, Unfortunately, uh, this solar panel had been damaged in some way, uh, probably because of space junk, uh, orbital debris that had hit one of the, the guide wires uh, in this panel. And uh, it was our job to relocate this solar panel from the top of the space station out to the very tip of it and unfurl these, these enormous solar wings. And, uh, and as this uh, solar panel was being unfurled, uh, it was noted that uh, it was it was getting snagged. Something was preventing it from uh, deploying properly. And uh, and what I love about NASA is just its capacity to take these you know daunting, seemingly impossible challenges and, and find elegant, almost uh, you know, simple solutions to to fix them. But uh, it it took 
NASA uh, engineers on the ground about 72 hours to come up with this plan to send uh, a spacewalking astronaut, uh, me, uh, along with my buddy Doug Wheelock, to go out and, and repair the, the solar panel to, to cut out this piece of guide wire that had interrupted the deployment and then uh, put in these, uh, we call them cufflinks, but uh, I guess cufflinks for giants, uh, pieces of wire about five feet in length that uh, we'd had to fashion with supplies inside the space station, sort of an Apollo 13 kind of situation where we had to build the repairs with the supplies that we had on board. We, we couldn't go to the local hardware store and you know get a solar array repair kit, so we had to build it <laughs> in place. And, uh, and lo and behold, you know, the, this, this repair worked beautifully. It was, uh, um, you know, really an audacious thing to, I had a, I had a 45 minute one-way commute to work out at the very tip of the space station and uh, just a, a God's eye view of, of uh, the space shuttle, the space station complex. You know, I remember looking down at the Himalayas and, and uh, the Great Barrier Reef and, uh, uh, and, and then to, have this uh, this repair you know go so well um, it was a real triumph for the the entire team it's just just, just absolutely incredible um, just, just amazing and, and just remind me again on, on which uh, how many missions in was it that that happened oh uh, it, it, for me personally yeah yeah it was my fifth and final flight into space so uh, this was in uh, uh, October November of 2007 at the the tail end of the, the space station assembly, um, and uh, the mission was called SPS-120. So That's it's the 120th uh, space shuttle mission. I, I mean, absolutely incredible. And, and I guess you know, even just um, reminding myself of some of the um, your personal sort of astronaut stats. Um, I think this is correct. I hope it's correct because it's from the NASA website. So, so please, <laughs> please, please blame them, not me, if I if I get these wrong. Um, but so you spent eight weeks in space in total. Um, you did um, 47 hours during seven spacewalks. Right. And uh, you, your total travel distance is, uh, is 23 million miles. That is correct. Also good stats. Yep. I mean, <laughs> I, I can breathe a sigh of relief. I've got my, my, my one, job, one job is done. So that's, um, I mean, that, that's just absolutely phenomenal. And um, I mean, is the, of, of all of, of, of those sort of incredible experiences in space, is there anything where you look back on and, and you, you sort of, is there anything basically you just can't forget that's, that's sort of always with you, even if things get sort of challenging um, that you think, or, or is it just everything uh, that, that you've done, do you think? Well, you know, what I remember most actually um, are my crewmates, the, the shared experience of, you know, this this out-of-body experience that you know, shared with wonderful people. Um, you spend you know, one to two years in very intensive training with a crew. They become an extended family. Uh, that family extends to the, the instructors and the flight controllers that you work with very, very closely. So I have these you know, strong bonds with my, my crewmates. Um, in terms of the, the, the visceral kinds of memories that I have, uh, many of them, uh, stem from you know, the launches, of course, but uh, especially the spacewalks, uh, getting out into this you know, rarefied air, in fact, uh, you know, the vacuum of space, uh, no air whatsoever, but uh, um, just having this God's eye view uh, back on all of humanity. It's, you know, the, 
the, the planet is in, incredibly beautiful and it, it, it can't be really captured in emulsion you know, on, on a film. Um, but, but then when you couple you know, the fact that you're floating there, you're, you're flying it at these extraordinary speeds and you're seeing a sunrise or sunset every 45 minutes um, with this full spectrum of light coming up from behind the Earth limb, uh, you see the planet without boundaries or, or dots on the map that depict cities, but you know, just a confluence of humanity and nature. And uh, I, I think it impacts everyone very profoundly. At, at a minimum, you come back uh, an environmentalist to some degree. You, you wanna do everything that you possibly can to preserve our planet. Um, sadly, many of the things that are most noticeable about our planet from space are generative, generated by uh, uh, humans. You can see bilge dumping in the ocean, jet contrails, uh, deforestation, forest fires, uh, soot uh, along the Trans-Siberian Railway. I remember seeing that. Uh, um, but by and large, uh, you know, I think um, you know, that we're, we're doing a relatively good job as stewards of our planet. Um, but I think it would be incredibly powerful to have more and more people have the same opportunity that I have to uh, to see our planet from space, especially if we could get some of our political leaders or decision makers uh, to uh, to see what's happening to our planet from that vantage point, um, both from a environmental perspective and I think also from a uh, kind of a international diplomacy perspective. I think if, if warring nations leaders could uh, could see their homeland from space, I, the concept of war. Would be untenable. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I mean, ju I mean, just on that point, what as a uh, an entrepreneur yourself, obviously, what are your views on what's happening with um, sort of commercial space flight and you know entrepreneurs like say Elon Musk and SpaceX um, and, mm -hmm. and the, the new developments that they've made in in sort of rocket architecture and science. It's extraordinary. You know, th these are sort of the the barnstorming uh, years of. Of commercial human spaceflight, uh, you know, Elon Musk is is really uh, taking uh, a, a shrewd business approach to uh, the space environment. How can we we reduce the cost uh, of a pound to orbit uh, by 10x or 100x? That's how you you scale businesses. And uh, so, rather than the you know the business model that has existed in the space program to date, where it's you know, large government contractors, you know, entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and uh, Sir Richard Branson on your side of the ocean uh, are looking at uh, ways to make access to space much more cost-effective such that we can bring not just uh, a few hundred uh, astronauts, government astronauts up into space over the, over the last uh, 50 plus years. They, they uh, will probably be bringing you know, 500, astronauts a month to space in, in another five or 10 years. So you're really trying to scale. Um, and I think that's incredibly exciting. It's, it's a wonderful thing for our planet. Um, I, I'm really keen on uh, you know, Elon Musk's vision to, uh, to colonize Mars. Um, in fact, he's you know, building these enormous rockets that he purports will be able to take 100 people on a one-way trip uh, to the red planet, which uh, you know, even five or 10 years ago would have been thought as, you know, just crazy talk, but, uh, 
and it, it's it's something that actually very well could happen in the next 15 or 20 years. And uh, I, I just get really, really excited when I think about the, the promise for our future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's been remarkable um, what, uh, you know, some private companies and also um, uh, NASA have, have been doing uh, with, with sort of the, the new technologies that are driving some of these these big sort of what, what might seem like unattainable goals forward. And it, it reflects quite, mm-hmm. uh, quite nicely on, I guess, you know, what, what uh, we see sort of in the entrepreneurial space in that, you know, a lot of goals or dreams can seem very out of reach. Um, but, but actually, if you, you know, if you put together a plan and you really go for it, that, that you can make them become a reality, even if it is through, you know, a significant amount of hard work. Indeed. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, as an entrepreneur, you know, what is your risk tolerance and, and how resilient are you? Those are the, those are essential uh, um, attributes. And, um, you know, uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and uh, Richard Branson um, have all been extremely successful in other facets of their lives and, and always wanted to uh, uh, pursue uh, travel to, to space and, and uh, you know, that They've got risk tolerance that they're incredibly resilient and it, it's going to happen. I think that's, it's really inspirational. And um, I mean, for, for you, I mean, again, sort of looking back, what do you think some of the biggest challenges for you uh, were when you were um, on, you know, on the space station or um, you know, on a spacewalk that you maybe hadn't necessarily predicted? Yeah, so uh, one of my mentors, uh, his name is Dr. Story Musgrave, uh, also physician astronaut uh, and a pioneering spacewalking astronaut. He actually led the first Hubble servicing mission that gave Hubble its eyes back and allowed us to see the, uh, the deep reaches of our universe um, on a mission called STS-61. It was a really audacious uh, flight. Um, but he, he was one of my spacewalking mentors and he would uh, always tell me, you know, Scott, the only thing expected about EVA, extravehicular activity or spacewalking, is the unexpected. Um, and that has really stuck with me. And in fact, uh, I use it, use that kind of mindset in everything that I do. Um, you know, look, look at the world that we live in today, <laughs> how no one could have envisioned that uh, um, a virus that originated half a world away would, would shut down the world economy, would, would have the devastation that it has had. <clears throat> so you know, I, I, I kind of um, always have that in my playbook, you know, the only thing uh, expected is the unexpected, more generally speaking. But uh, um, every, every spacewalk that I took, uh, there were things that uh, would crop up that you know, we hadn't trained for that uh, had never been predicted. When you're working in environments like that, where the, the temperature extremes are or uh, you know, 500 degrees within one orbit of the planet. Uh, you're working in the vacuum of space where lubricants don't really uh, behave in the same same way as they would on Earth. And and uh, you know, tolerances uh, with pieces of hardware that were were built. You know, some in Russia, some in Europe, some in the U.S., some in Japan, some in Canada, and they meet for the very first time in space. Unexpected things do happen, and so you just have to be nimble. Um, and so I had a number of uh, experiences like that. Uh, the, the most significant, of course, was the uh, the solar ray repair that I talked about. But um, by and large, the the training that we had 
uh, allowed us to, to adapt and ultimately be successful. And I, I think I think just to emphasise, um, you know, for anybody listening, uh, that, that that particular story that that you're talking about repairing the solar array, I, I think I'm I'm still correct in saying um, that's still considered one of the most challenging and dangerous um, Evas ever performed um, because of you sort of how you were sort of perched and, and how you were having to do it. Um, was that something that kind of crossed your mind when it? <laughs> Was it needed doing, or was it just sort of one of those things where you, you've had to get on and do it, basically? Well, it, so it, it was rather uh, extraordinary to go out and work on this solar panel. And you know, there are times in life when you have to accept a higher degree of risk for a, a greater possibility of reward. And, and um, we needed the the power from that solar panel that had been damaged to allow us to ultimately launch European and, and Japanese modules that were next in the International Space Station assembly sequence. So it was very important that we figure out a way to salvage the solar panel if we could. Otherwise, it meant going out on a, a contingency spacewalk and throwing away this billion dollar solar panel and then potentially not being able to, to take advantage of these other modules. So uh, yes, it was certainly uh, very much uh, front and center in my mind as we went out to do this repair. Uh, I remember uh, Paolo Nespoli from Italy, an Italian astronaut, was um, guiding me through the procedures. And I was on the, the way out to the solar panel on this ungainly 90-foot-long robotic arm to repair the solar panel. And he was reading me all of the cautions and warnings and alerts that I should be cognizant of uh, as I was doing the repair uh, that was about to unfold. Uh, and if I Keep an eye out for arcing. You know, uh, the, the solar panel had become damaged, and so I might see some some arcing electricity uh, near the solar panel. And I couldn't have any direct contact with any part of my spacesuit, lest uh, uh, there could be an electrocution or a fire within my suit. I mean, all these things, all these doomsday sorts of things, were read out to me, and uh, and so I said, "Wow, Paulo, thanks, thanks a lot for all those." Uh, those warnings. And he said, wait a second, I'm only halfway done. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and then he continued. So, um, uh, you know, it, first, first and foremost, uh, our goal was to be safe, you know, to, to make it a round trip. As I like to say, as a mountaineer, I'm a, I'm a mountain climber as well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not about, uh, attaining the summit. It's about uh, making sure that you come back. And, uh, and so we were, we had a very, um, well thought out plan on how to do this repair without having any, any uh, direct physical contact with the solar panel. I had all these different tools to keep me at a, at a safe distance while putting in the, these cufflinks or sutures uh, across the solar panel. Um, but if it, if it had not um, looked promising, if we tried to do the repair and, and uh, things just weren't behaving, uh, the, the plan had been to to knock it off, to, to pull you back into the uh, the airlock, and we would go out the, the next day or, or the day after with a plan C. So, you know, I, I think when you set out to do something especially challenging, it's important to have a, a well thought out plan to, to take advantage of every member of the team, and uh, you know, to really have a clear sense of what success was. And success was 
uh, making sure that everyone came back inside after the end of the spacewalk, uh, it would have been you know, golden to get the repair done. And, uh, and thankfully we, we were successful and we had uh, golden success in, in getting the, the re repair done as well. No, it's absolutely amazing. And, and, and um, I think equally as amazing, um, which, which you've um, just alluded to, is that you're an explorer, not just in space, but um, on our planet as well. And um, am I correct in saying that you retired from um, your astronaut duties in 2009? And in the same year, that's when you uh, stood on top of Everest. That's right. Uh, I, I tried the year before 2008 while still an astronaut to go uh, climb the mountain um, and ended up with a severe back injury. Uh, ended up having a, a neurosurgeon do my back as opposed to an orthopedist. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> but, very uh, wise. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, after having a uh, microdiscectomy, uh, went back the following year um, after having uh, you know, left the space program and uh, was successful in, in topping out on Everest and uh, um, really a, a wonderful sense of accomplishment. You know, I, I think the things that come to us the most difficult uh, end up meaning the most to us. And, and the fact that I, I wasn't successful in topping out the first year and having to struggle back, you know, the following year to, to finally make it was, uh, you know, just a euphoric life experience. I, I've, so, I've, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, I, I think the just, you know, the fortitude to um, obviously, I, I can't even imagine the disappointment of, of not being able to summit it first uh, time in 2008. Um, but then to, you know, go back and and achieve it must have just been absolutely fantastic. Um, but I mean, I mean, you had you'd been doing a lot of mountaineering for a, a while around your, your around your sort of astronaut training. Is, is, is that correct? right? That's right. Yeah, so uh, you know, I've been um, you know climbing in the Andes, the Alaska Range, the Rockies, uh, a little bit in the Alps as well. Um, but this is my first uh, you know huge mountain in uh, the Himalayas, and uh, um, you know just fulfillment of another boyhood dream of mine, which is to uh, um, get up into that rarefied air. Um, I'd read every book about uh, not only the successes on on Everest and Annapurna and, and K2, but, but also the failures. Um, and that served as a, a great guidebook of what not to do on, uh, on Everest. And I, I, I used the same sort of mindset and, and training program that I'd use for spaceflight to get ready for, for climbing that big mountain. I, I, was, I was going to ask you, how did, how did you find the training kind of compared to um, what you'd experienced previously? Well, uh, you know, there's a technical aspect to, to climbing, of course, uh, and I've been climbing since my teens. So I, I, I'd honed my skills, uh, you know, over many, many years getting ready for a big mountain like that. But the, the physical and the mental preparation is, is quite intense. Um, and living at sea level here in Houston, it's, it's not easy to be a high altitude mountaineer. <laughs> but uh, um, what I did is uh, kind of ultra endurance types of, of training. Um, I don't know if you've ever done spin classes before, but uh, they're, they're quite intense, uh, short burst, you know, 50 to 60 minute classes. I would do two, three, even four classes back to back. And I would uh, press my, um, my limits. Um, I, I got, got to the point where I could really understand my, uh, my red line, you know, 
how how far can I press myself physically yeah. without actually hurting myself? And so there, you know, there's a you need to be able to ascertain the difference between hey, this is uh, a healthy degree of exhaustion versus no, you you're really doing you know harm here. And so being able to, to press yourself uh, you know right up to that red line and sustain yourself for long periods of time that that was really great mental preparation for the rigors of going on Everest. Um, I, I mean, I, again, just a phenomenal achievement. And, and, and again, I, I think I'm, I'm, tr- I'm going to make you not undersell yourself in any of these already amazing achievements. But I think you were, um, again, might be correct in saying you were the first astronauts to stand on top of Everest. Is that, is that correct? Uh, that's right. Uh, there is a, a, a second now, a good friend of mine, Maurizio Kelly, a European and Italian astronaut. In fact, one of my classmates, and he submitted, I believe, two years ago. Uh, so there are now two of us uh, who have both been in space and have stood on top of the world. And um, hopefully there'll be more in the not too distant future. Hopefully that, you know, climbing and just travel in general will uh, become possible again. But, uh, Absolutely. And, and I think just on the sort of final um, bit of, I suppose, years and explorer, the, the other bit that always just fascinates me is, is um, you will say, um, Basically, been to the uh, the world's youngest lava lake um, in Nicaragua. <laughs> what, what 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 possessed you to do that? Well, it, again, it, uh, we talked about this at the very beginning of our, our chat here. Uh, by going into extraordinary environments, it challenges us as innovators as well, not only to sustain life but to extract science from these uh, dynamic places. And I was invited. Uh, by Sam Kosman, uh, who had gathered together a team of explorers to go visit Masaya Volcano in Nicaragua, the youngest lava lake in the world, as you point out. And the goal was to implant a, a sensor array, um, not only at the, the crater rim, but down adjacent the, the lava lake. Uh, and the goal of this was to collect an enormous data set that would allow us to essentially tease out signatures of uh, uh, eruptive activity. So if we could give the citizens of Managua, Nicaragua, where 2 million people live, about 15 minutes away, an early warning that, hey, the Messiah volcano is about to erupt, we could save many, many lives. And so the goal was essentially to put this volcano online, to create a, uh, an ability not only for professional volcanologists, but citizen scientists to tease through the, the data to create mathematical models with uh, the new tools that we have in uh, machine learning and, and so on to uh, to save lives. And so uh, it was a, a wonderful life experience. Uh, and I would tell you, it's actually the scariest thing I've ever done. Um, and the reason I say that is because when you go climbing a big mountain or go out on a spacewalk or, uh, or go on a, a deep ocean dive, you can control many of the variables in those environments. They're, um, how should I say this? They're environmental uh, constraints and hardware constraints and, and uh, teamwork constraints that you can kind of control and, and go in with a relative degree of, of knowledge and safety. But when you're around a lava lake, it's such an unpredictable dynamic environment. And I remember when I repelled down to the, the lowest level of, of this crater, 1,200 feet down, and we're about to hike up to the shoreline of this lava lake. And there were 
pure lava bombs you know, being ejected, you know, flying over our heads, I realized that I, I have very little control over this thing changing at any, any instant. And, uh, and so we, we went about our business as quickly as we could. We, we, uh, we implanted the, the sensor station. We took some incredible video and we got the heck out of there. <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, but yeah, I, I, as, as, I, as we started this chat, Alex, uh, you know, I, I think it is really an exciting time to be alive where we can apply you know, augmented reality, um, uh, machine learning, um, and uh, robotics and other, other new technologies to essentially put our, our planet online to to uh, to give ourselves early warnings for all sorts of uh, you know, natural um, disasters. Um, I think we'll be able to use the same sorts of tools to uh, to make in incredible advances in, in healthcare. Our, our bodies are are spitting out all sorts of information that we're not really listening to yet. But I think in the next you know five or ten years we'll have the ability to get way out in front of disease. Um, and then of course uh, in the in the realm of spaceflight to be able to, to, to explore further with many more people. Um, we just have to get past this, uh, this current pandemic and, <laughs> and, uh, and heal as a planet, I guess. Well, absolutely. And um, I guess just to you know, start, start sort of wrapping things up, I think it reflects back quite nicely to what we were talking at the top of the conversation, which was uh, you, I suppose, as an inventor and, and your current um, company. So, you know, if doing all those um, incredible things wasn't hard enough. You then decided uh, for more sort of self harm, which is to start your own company and become something. <laughs> right. So, um, and, and this is kind of you know one of the ways that we sort of connected. And I think what you're doing at the moment is absolutely amazing. Um, it'd be great if we just sort of you know finish up having a little bit of a, a conversation around this. You bet. Well, uh, my, my current company, Fluidity Technologies, is centered around really uh, interpreting human intent and mapping that through to a three-dimensional world. So essentially to make, for example, drone flight almost a subconscious act. And so the, the devices that we've developed make uh, drone flight incredibly intuitive, uh, such that a five-year-old can fly the most complex maneuvers within five minutes. Uh, the same sorts of technologies will very soon allow us to fly electric flying cars or helicopters with, with incredible ease. ROVs under the ocean, industrial cranes and robotics, uh, augmented in virtual reality. And ultimately my goal is to, uh, to truly enable telesurgery, to be able to operate a surgical robot, say from here in Houston, Texas, and, and deliver the same you know, quality outcome in sub-Saharan Africa or in rural Nepal as we, as we have here in in Houston or London. And so that may sound like science fiction. Uh, it's really not that far off when you can, can really interpret human intent, give the, the surgeon or the operator uh, tactile feedback as to what's happening out at the, the tip of uh, your instrument. Um, and to be able to do this over long distances because we'll very soon have uh, internet connectivity around the world without exception. Um, very, very excited about that future. And, and this is all using um, sort of the haptic components of, of some of the things that, that you started to use on, the, on um, uh, your space flights, is, is that correct? That's correct. You're working in three dimensions uh, as we do robotic arms, flying 
spacecraft and uh, working in VR simulations over, over many years. It was the, the real catalyst for, for this innovation. Um, well, I mean, it's been just, as always, an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Um, Likewise, yeah. yeah. Just to sort of uh, finally finish things off, um, I always ask everyone on the uh, podcast just to give an example of uh, what I sort of call a human performance hero, someone who you find mm -hmm. inspiring. Uh, could be from any walk of life. Um, so finish up with that. And then we'll, um, I'll also just plug, obviously, your book, which I think everyone should read. Um, oh, the story below, which I've, I've now I've now read for um, I'll say two and a half times because um, I, I got um, halfway through on a flight and then actually lost a version of your book. <laughs> <laughs> I now have a nice brand new copy, which is excellent. Um, which is, yeah, oh, the, awesome. The sky below. Um, although I guess technically I bought it twice, which is which is good for your book. Sales. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah, that, that's that's good. Residuals. Well, yeah. Um, Let's see. Um, by, my uh, kind of human performance hero, um, there, there's several it, uh, that I could turn to, but uh, um, I, I think the one that's that's most apt for this uh, particular podcast I'll mention is Sir Roger Bannister. Um, so I was a middle distance runner in uh, in high school and, and became an 800 and 1500 meter runner uh, in my freshman year of college, and and uh, I, I was fascinated uh, and inspired by the way he took uh, an engineering or scientific approach to tackling what had in his age been seen as an insurmountable challenge, which was breaking the four minute mile. And what he did, as, as you're probably aware, is he, he broke down the, uh, the mile into attainable pieces. And he decided, well, I'm going to run at world record pace uh, do, do uh, series of sprints, uh, 100 meters uh, at a time, and run at that world record pace, and then tie them together in longer and longer segments, such that he essentially trained himself to, to run at this uh, extraordinary pace to break that uh, insurmountable four-minute mile pace. And, um, and so that's something that, um, both from, from an athletic perspective, but also from a more global uh, um, innovation perspective really, you know, inspires me to this day. Um, I, I'd recommend uh, reading his book. I'm forgetting the name of his uh, uh, classic book. I'll have to have to, have to Google that here, but uh, um, but he he would he would be at, at the at the top of the list for me. I mean, yeah, I mean, again, just a fantastic achievement, and um, thank you again for picking a Brit as, a, as your <laughs> yeah. yeah well, <laughs> um, as, but listen, it's it's been an absolute pleasure as always um, catching up with you, and I'm I'm very glad you indulged me at asking some very nerdy and geeky questions around your backstory, which I know you've recounted a, a million times before um, to, to everybody, but it, it certainly never ever. Um, you know, loses any any magic when when I either read about it or, or hear anything that you've done. I think it's just absolutely unbelievably amazing. Um, Thank you. Just just to kind of uh, completely finish off, um, where can sort of uh, people find out a, bit, a little bit about fluidity or, or um, you know connect with yourself? Oh, thank you. Uh, first off, the, the uh, Sir Roger Bannister's book is called The Four Minute Mile. Of course, it is uh, aptly named. Um, uh, so my website is uh, parazinski.com, uh, P-A-R-A 
Z-Y-N-S-K-I. Great way to um, uh, stay connect, connected to me. I also have uh, Instagram and Twitter uh, feeds, Asker Doc Scott. And uh, I hope uh, your, your listeners will check out The Sky Below as well. It's available uh, on Kindle as well as in print uh, through Amazon. Absolutely. And, and I, th- I think just, just to finish off with all your achievements, my personal favorite is that I think, you, I, I think again, I'm correct in saying, please correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but um, you've got one of the most famous astronaut selfies ever taken. <laughs> you know, actually, uh, that's been uh, stated many, many times. There is a great shot of just my, my gold visor and, and the, this reflection of, of the International Space Station in it. But actually, my buddy Doug Wheelock took that photo. So I, I cannot <laughs> claim uh, uh, credit for that selfie. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>